Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. There's two ways to get better with your finances, decrease your expenses and increase your income. It's a two-sided equation. And when you work both angles, magical things happen. Today's guest is really teaching us a lot about how to work on increasing our income. I think it's really interesting. And if you listen to his experiences, you're definitely going to gain a ton of different information about how you might better your own life. If you're a business owner or an aspiring business owner, this episode is definitely going to help you. Today's guest is my friend, James Pat. If you don't know who James is, he is a builder of an investor in companies. He's the CEO of Upland Optics, which is a sporting optics company built for hunters and a kitchenware company. This is a consumer cookware brand called Kichara Cookware. It's the highest quality direct to consumer brand. It's really fascinating because he is very interesting. He's a very different character. And I think it's so fun to learn from him and just absorb. Every time I chat with him, I always walk away feeling like I learned a little bit more. Here's what you're going to learn in today's episode. We talk about starting work at 14 years old and investing that money into future business endeavors. He's been at this stuff for quite some time, but it's very fascinating to see his mindset around work and how he started from such a young age. We talk about how to navigate product development. This is something that as an online business, but not in a product business, I always find this stuff so interesting. We talk about what makes the binoculars that James sells better than his competitors the importance of marketing and how he has marketed his binoculars. We have a really good discussion on organic versus paid advertising and the advantages of each, how James created a cookware business using a very similar business model to his optics business. We also have a conversation around Amazon reviews and how they're actually becoming more reliable. This is so interesting. I always thought Amazon reviews were a crapshoot, but James really gave me some really good feedback on how to approach those. Going back to school at a Harvard Extension School while running several businesses. This tip alone is so fascinating. If you've been considering going back for an MBA or some type of higher education, the Harvard Extension program might be for you. He talks a little bit about the pros and cons. He also dives into when he disagreed with a Harvard professor over perspectives on investing and how that actually worked out. I loved his commentary there. I thought it was very interesting. How to accurately perceive a company's value, why James owns several individual stocks, even though he wouldn't necessarily recommend doing the same thing for most people, his decision-making process when deciding who to invest in, which companies to choose. We even have a conversation about his journey to reading each president's biography over 15 months. Love it, right? Like we definitely cover a huge spectrum of information and content. And I think there's definitely something that will inspire you throughout this. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with my friend, James Petsky. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode. Today, I'm joined by one of my pals, James Petsky. James, thank you so much for hanging out. Yeah, thanks, Whit. Thanks for having me. I am stoked to have you on the show. We've been in-person friends for quite some time, and I've been lucky enough to see your business start, grow, evolve, and ultimately, it's really been a fun journey. So it's truly an honor to have you. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much. I mean, we yeah, we've known each other since the first Venture College cohort, and that was... Eight years ago, something like that. Dude, I don't even know. It's been so long. Yeah, (laughs) it has been. It's been really fun. And I know a lot about your background and like how you grew up, but I don't think Mm -hmm. anybody does. You don't often talk about that. So can you give us some context into how was money talked about when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. So my parents were definitely very frugal. Um, very frugal. And and that was a really good thing that instilled a lot of the right values. But my parents are both teachers. So, you know, money wasn't something that was, it was certainly we didn't have a lot of money growing up, especially because they were early in their careers at that point um, when I was younger. And so they, they definitely had great values in terms of, you know, being wise about your money, living within your means, um, being frugal, not spending anything you don't have to definitely do, you know, do things the DIY approach, definitely not eating out a lot, things like that. 
um, to save money. And, you know, they, my parents were never like focused on making big money, obviously, like, you know, obviously their, their choice of profession, which is unfortunate teaching doesn't necessarily, you, you can't like become an all-star teacher and make $10 million, right? Like that's just not something that's possible. So that wasn't really something that was a focus for them. So I kind of got the, the business stuff, um, on my own when I started looking into that, but my parents definitely taught me really great values, um, around what to do with the money that you make. So I would say that was really important, um, when I was growing up to have that context. And then when I, when I did start getting into the, the more business and the money making side too, they were pretty encouraging about that. And I, I started pretty young. Um, I was always, I think, I think having parents that prioritize having, having good money values, it, gave me an interest and, you know, gave me some ambition in thinking about money. And that was, that's what led me to business in some ways. I kind of wondered that too. So that, that's yeah. really interesting. So that value of money that like you should honor every single dollar because they didn't have as much, they mm-hmm. almost had to. How old were you when you started working? I was 14. Yeah. You're and that a baby. was actually- I was a baby. Yeah, I applied for my first job and interviewed for my first job when I was actually 13. And then I, so it was a summer job of basically fixing computers for the school district tech department. My parents were teachers, you know, so they heard about this job. And I remember them telling me about it when I was even like years younger than that. So when I was like 11 or 12, I remember hearing the concept of, oh, you can get this job in the summer and they'll pay you, it was like $9 an hour or something like that. And, you know, to an 11 year old who, you know, whose family prioritizes being frugal, I'm like, you mean I can trade an hour of my time and get $9? Like, that's an amazing deal. So, of course, I, you know, I got all excited about that and I jumped on it as soon as I was 13. So I worked that job for four years uh, every year in the sum, uh, in the summers and then also sometimes part time during the school year. Um, that was kind of what you know got me started and allowed me to save up a little money uh, to then start my business later on. I wondered. So is that what you did with the money is you use that to then invest into your first business? Yep. So some of it went to college. So I, yeah, I came here to Boise State. Uh, as soon as I, I graduated high school. And so a lot of it went to that. My parents also were able to, my, my parents, um, by that point, my parents had done a lot better. And the teaching system, like you you make more money the more years, you know, it's, it's very mm. cut and dry, like ladder payments. So, you know, by that point, my parents were able to help me with college, which was awesome. And then the rest of it I paid for with the savings I had saved from um, the money that uh, I made in the summers. And then also I used a bunch of that money to try and start businesses, um, which, you know, this story, um, you know, when I first started, it was a massive failure. The first couple of years I lost money. I reported negative income on my tax returns. So <laughs> thankfully I've had a turnaround since then. Um, things have gotten much better <laughs> in the say. years preceding that, but man, those first couple of years were, they were pretty rough. I was both a, a poor college student and a broke entrepreneur at the same time. So not, not the best. Yeah, not the best living, um, you know, not the best in terms of lifestyle that you can live on on that kind of money. But, you know, I made it through. (laughs) What were the first businesses? Remind me. So the very first thing for my senior project, I decided to start a freelance web design business. So oh, okay. when I was in my high school, I decided to you know, say, okay, because I knew how to design websites. That was kind of what I was doing in the, in the summer job that I was doing and also some passion projects, you know, that I'd done on the side and for school and whatnot. And so I said, okay, I'll start a freelance web design business because that was just the only option that I really knew about. So I did that and that one didn't lose money, but it also didn't really make any money. Like I only ever had two or three clients and I, you know, I made a little bit of money from it. It was good. But then I, um, from there I heard about what I did. I Googled, how do you make money with a website? So I, cause mm-hmm. I made websites. So I was like, I wonder if there's a way to make money with a website, which is how I got into the whole concept of making money with blogs and with content websites. So from there I started launching websites around all kinds of various topics. Um, the, the first one that I had that was kind of successful, it was called what's coming in 2014. It was a site that I made in 2013 and towards the end of the year, it started ranking in Google for these keywords, like what movies are coming out in 2014. And, um, I can't remember some of the other ones. It was was like best investments for 2014 and it was just making money on Google AdSense clicks. So for like two or three months, it made a bunch of money because everyone was Googling those keywords at the end of the year. Um, and you know, that, that worked out pretty well. And then I also had some websites around hunting and then I started a pocket knife website, which I think that's probably where around the time that we met in venture college is when I was building that first knife website. I think it was. Yeah. And that's when, that's when I got exposed into affiliate marketing when you're selling other people's products on commission. 
give everybody some context. I think we've all seen affiliate marketing and maybe don't realize it's affiliate marketing when we see those BuzzFeed articles of like, these are the top 10 Amazon products you must buy that are under 50 bucks. Like, is it is it really only through Amazon? Is that the strategy you were using or was it other companies? At the time, it was just Amazon. Um, Amazon definitely had a very good affiliate program at the time. It was, it, it, and that was part of why Amazon grew so well is because yeah. they got every other website out there to promote their stuff because they paid better commission rates. So everybody who had a content website, whenever they were promoting someone's products, they wanted to promote it on Amazon just because Amazon paid better, which makes perfect sense, right? Since then, they've completely changed. And unfortunately, in the last couple of years, their commission rates have fallen like 75 to 80%. So it's it's changed a little bit, and my strategy on my websites has changed. And I now I use other affiliates and make higher commissions by going directly to manufacturers in a lot of cases and mm. promoting their products through their own affiliate programs. But it kind of depends on the situation still, because every every industry is different. I didn't even make that connection of everybody promoting Amazon and why that would potentially factor their growth. Like, did mm -hmm. not even make that connection. That is so interesting. It was a big part of their initial investment. I mean, because that's how Jeff Jeff Bezos' whole thing, you know, is that he wanted to invest everything up front. Like they never made a profit for the first, you know, 15, 20 years. And, you know, they just invested everything back into growing. And a big way they did that is they cut their margins by paying their affiliates more. So their affiliates promoted their stuff more. That is so crazy. Very, very interesting. I yeah, did not make that connection. Good mm -hmm. observation though. So you started. Let's talk a little bit about the pocket knife business because that's the one yeah. I'm more familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, give everybody some context. Like, is it just like standard pocket knives, or like how did you find them? How did you sell them? How did you yeah, market them? I, actually, I have one right here. Um, this, this kind of ironic. Um, these little pocket knives, just the, the flip open pocket knife. Uh, yeah. I still desk. But yeah, so basically I was making commissions selling these pocket knives on Amazon, right? And then I said, okay, I'm making a 7% commission, I think at the time. Why don't I just make my own pocket knife and make the whole thing, get the whole sure. 100%. So that's kind of what I did. I went to Alibaba and I started looking for manufacturers and I found somebody who made pocket knives and got a bunch of samples, picked one out that I liked and customized it and put a logo on it and started selling it. And I, I started with an order of like 600 of them. And they were selling really fast initially. So then I bought 2,000 more. Oh, and wow. then sales slowed down. Um, and I still have like several hundred pocket knives in a box in a warehouse somewhere. <laughs> it's Christmas gifts for <laughs> life. They, yeah, seriously, because they, you know, they, they didn't sell very well um, after the first few months. And then I got focused on other businesses and never tried to sell them again. So I, you know, still have a few of these hanging around somewhere, but <laughs> I still have that, one in my camping. It was a good bin. learning experience. Oh, nice. Awesome. I do. I do. Yeah. Every time I go backpacking, I always bring it with me. Awesome. <laughs> I just, every time I'm like, James, touch your knife. <laughs> awesome. It's the best. I'm curious from your perspective now, what, what would you have done differently with the pocket knife business if you were truly going to make it a thing? Ooh, that's a tough question. Like, so I will say like, in terms of like my life, I wouldn't do anything different because the pocket knife business provided really valuable learning, right? For it's sure. what, it's what gave me the ideas and the opportunities to build the binocular business, Upland mm -hmm. Optics, which has been the one that has been enormously successful and really popular with customers. If I were to try to make the pocket knife business successful, uh, the, I, I would have done a few things. You know, Amazon has, there's kind of two different ways to play it. You can either play it on price, where, which is what a lot of people do, and it's kind of a race to the bottom situation, right, where you're just trying to be the lowest price option on Amazon. And that's not my, not the way that I prefer to do business. It can be successful. A lot of people have been successful with that. And with something like a pocket knife, that's a cheap product that there's, you know, 70,000 different options on Amazon. That might that might be, you know, one way to do it. The other way is to go more high end and then go to like reviewers and stuff like that and magazines, try to get it promoted as a high end option and build more of a, a long term brand around it. That's what I probably would have done and definitely launched more products. too. I only ever had this. I think I had this one pocket knife and then I had one big fixed blade knife. Um, but the knife industry is one that, you know, you could have a lot of products in, obviously. So that I makes sense. There. 
Okay. So, so you would do a slightly different marketing play, but how did you apply those lessons into Upland Optics? Give us a little context first and foremost. Mm -hmm. What the heck is Upland Optics? Yeah. So Upland Optics is a, we call ourselves a direct to consumer sporting optics brand for hunters. So basically what that means is we sell binoculars, spotting scopes, range finders, basically all the optics products that a hunter would need or any other kind of outdoorsman would need. Uh, We do, we do primarily focus on hunters, but our products are used by everyone from bird watchers, to whale watchers, what have you. Um, we even have, actually, we've had a few orders come from the FBI. I mean, we, have, we sell our oh, products sweet. to all kinds of people. So um, we yeah, we sell these products directly to consumers, which means we don't sell through any physical retailers or anyone else that takes a cut in, um, price, in, in the price. And so because of that, we're able to sell higher quality glass at the same price points as other uh, major optics providers. You know, when you buy a Vortex binocular, or a Leopold binocular through Cabela's, Cabela's is getting a big cut of that. Because we don't go through third-party retailers, we don't have to deal with that, and so we can sell better products at the same price, which has kind of been the the key to our our successful model. We sell on Amazon and through our own website, and it's worked really well. We actually, just a couple months ago, we crossed 10,000 pairs of binoculars that we've sold um, in the history of the company, which is crazy. Uh, a lot of binoculars. A lot of binoculars. And it's it's kind of cool because that means that there's 10,000 customers out there that use our products, which is awesome, right? Like 10,000 hunters are out there using our products. And we're really proud of that. And, you know, our, our main binocular that we sell, our 10 by 42 binocular, it's got about 300 reviews on Amazon, averages, I think, 4.6 rating. Like, you know, yeah. people have definitely been very happy with our, with our brand. Um, and it's all been built online, selling directly to consumers. That's amazing. So for a lot of people that consider the product business, I think sometimes they get scared off because they're immediately thinking this is going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars in product development. How do you how do you find a product, make it your own, but actually know that it's a quality product at the same time? Like what process did you guys go through for that? That's a really tough thing. And I, I would say it sometimes can be that, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in development to, to make it. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it, I mean, it, it obviously very much depends on what industry you're going to get into, right? Like the knife business, I think my my first order of products that I did, it was only like seven or $8,000 in total for the whole shipment. Oh, okay. uh, it might have even been less than that. I mean, it was, I mean, it was thousands of dollars still. I mean, it's not like you can, the physical product business you can't get into for free, right? Like there, there are businesses, like you can start a podcast essentially for free. You can start a a blog essentially for free, but if you want to launch a physical product, you have to have inventory. And the only way that you can get inventory is you have to either work with a supplier or you have to make it yourself. So, you know, the make it yourself route, you can get started a little bit cheaper. So like Alex Jangard, who you had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, he makes his products himself. They're very high end custom products. It's essentially an art, right? Which is, which is really cool. And it's a really great business. Um, that one you can get into, you know, he has to have the, he has to have the knowledge of how to do that as well as, you know, some tools and whatnot. Um, the other way to do it is you have to go through a manufacturer, which if you want to go that way, you're going to have to have the money to pay enough for an MOQ, a minimum order quantity, right? So okay. when I when we order binoculars, we have to order at least 500 at a time. Oof, that's a lot. They won't, they won't let you order less than that, right? And so when you're paying a lot of money per binocular, right, that's all of a sudden that adds up. So if it's, say, it's $100 for whatever product you want to sell and you have to order at least 500 of them because no manufacturer is going to do it if it's not a substantial order, that's 50 grand. That's a lot of money, right? So... It can be really tough to to go down that route if you if you don't have some capital behind you, um, especially with more expensive products. With cheaper products, it's a little bit easier to get away with it. Like I said, the pocket knives it was it was less than ten thousand dollars for sure to launch the pocket knife business, and that's because it was a cheaper product. But it it can be hard. And as far as the the product development itself goes, the way that we've done it, and we've done it um, a few different ways, but mostly what we've done is we have a, a product sourcing partner in China. So we have uh, somebody who's essentially a, a part-time employee in China who goes around to manufacturers and essentially acts as the sourcing agent for us. And they also supervise the, the actual production of our products and supervise our shipments and whatnot. And that's somebody that my business partner met. Um, I can't remember exactly how they met, but um, he actually traveled to China with him at one point, and they went to the Canton Fair for a couple of weeks and, you know, looked over all these different suppliers' products. 
So you basically have to have a way of getting in front of suppliers in you know whatever area you're going to be sourcing your product from, and that's usually China, just because you know the reality is most products are made in China or other Asian countries, especially products that you might sell if you're going to you know start an online business. So yeah, you have to have a way to get over either get over there or view them online, and you know you can view them online pretty easily through something like Alibaba, and that at least give you a starting point, and then. You just got to get samples um, from different manufacturers. And like we try to get samples whenever we're launching a product from a lot of different manufacturers, you know, to just kind of compare them side by side. And then you got to really put them through the ringer, you know, like test the products to the specifications that they claim and make sure they actually hold up. Um, And then you just kind of got to go from there. That's I guess that's kind of where and maybe it's because I I don't. I need binoculars. I need to actually order a pair because I need some for when I go to Yellowstone. I'll hook you up. You know, I know somebody. <laughs> I know. Happen to know somebody. And throw in a pocket knife, which I'm just, yeah. <laughs> you can never have too many of those. Exactly. No, I'm, yeah. I'm curious though for the quality of like binoculars or spotting scopes. Maybe I'm a little bit naive, but I think a lot of people feel like you could just order any of them and they're all kind of similar. They all do a similar job. Is that really not the case when it comes to spotting scopes and binoculars? There are, there are like three different levels, I would say, in the optics industry. There are the bottom of the barrel, Amazon, you know, you go search binoculars and you can find a pair that costs 20 to 30 bucks <laughs> and they will work, right? In, in the sense that they will magnify what you are looking at. Mm. Now, whether or not you'll be able to focus that image or the image will be clear or it'll work in low light situations, probably not. So what you want to do, the, the best value for your money is you go in the mid-range products, which is what we sell. Like our binocular costs $250 uh, for customers. And the biggest difference is that we have what's called extra low dispersion glass. It's a special kind of glass that's more clear and works well. It allows it allows something like 95% of light to pass through it, whereas lower quality glass doesn't. Um, so you have higher light transmission works better in low light situations, which is really important if you're a hunter, which is kind of why we focused on that niche. And then you have the ultra high-end optics. So you have like the Swarovskis and Carl Zeiss of the optics world, where you spend like $3,000 on a pair of binoculars and you get slightly better than what we sell. So you may get 97% light transmission instead of 95. Which is really important if you're, you know, a specialist and you use your optics all the time. But for the average person, probably not as big of a deal. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of those are kind of the three different levels, right? You've got your your I don't want to say crappy products, but kind of crappy products at the very bottom of the barrel. That you know, if you're only ever going to use them once, maybe that's what you want. And then you've got your your mid range products, where if you're you know an enthusiast bird watcher or you work for the National Forest Service and you need to be able to look at things far away, or whatever, or you're a hunter. Then you buy that. And then if you're like a super specialist and you have lots of money to throw at getting the absolute best, you know, you buy the Ferrari of binoculars and you get a Swarovski. So interesting. I didn't realize all this. So when it comes to like quality testing, are you guys, I presume you're going out in all the different lighting scenarios to test and see, Mm -hmm. you know, what's, what's the clarity there? Are you like dropping them on the ground and like seeing how durable they are too? Is that something you guys do? Oh yeah. I mean, and yeah, we've done like controlled testing like that. And then the, the biggest thing that we do, honestly, is that we test them by using them ourselves because, yeah. you know, Braden and I are both hunters and we do backcountry elk and deer hunting in the Rocky Mountains. Like we hunt some of the most rugged terrain. You do, we're, man. We're pretty intense. And so because of that, you know, we've been testing our products. I've even using the same pair of binoculars, you know, from my own company for the last five years. And I can tell you what they have. <laughs> I mean, they've gone through freezing weather, blizzards. They've been dropped. They've been, you know, bumped against trees and rocks. I mean, everything that can possibly happen to them has happened to them and they're still just fine. So that's the biggest way that, you know, we test them is just by using them ourselves because we're hunters and, you know, that's what we're passionate about. I think it's important to, I think whenever you can speak to the niche and you're part of it, I think it helps so mm-hmm. much and just building that credibility. So when it comes to this type of business, I can imagine that branding is huge huge. That is probably one of the biggest key pieces of that. So talk to us a little bit about when you're branding a product business, do you have any tips or tricks that you find especially useful? I mean, I I think you got to really focus on your customer. I think that's the biggest thing. And so when you go to uplandoptics.com, the whole website is focused around hunters, right? Like we we decided that was our market. And so we went around them. All the images are of hunters. All the wording is about hunting. You know, we talk about it all the time. Like if, you, if you're really focused on the customer, 
that's what's going to help your marketing. And then also just having, you know, a quality product speaks for your, speaks for itself, right? Like I was saying, you know, we have 300 Amazon reviews, the average of like 4.6 stars, you know, that is marketing in and of itself. So if you have that quality product that earns those kind of reviews, I mean, it's going it, to, it'll sell itself. That makes sense. Okay. So when you're, when you're choosing a niche, I know for a lot of newbie entrepreneurs too, the mm -hmm. idea of really honing in on one specific segment is kind of scary as hell. So do you, do you still talk about also good for bird watching or is it like we, we went all in on hunters and that's the reason why it's successful? Oh yeah. We went all in on hunters. We don't talk about other, like if you look at our marketing, the marketing that we put out, we don't market to anybody else on upland optics, but it's funny. The thing about that is if you're a bird watcher and you look at a binocular and you know, it's good for hunting, you know, it's probably going to be good for bird watching too. And so we actually do have a lot of bird watchers and other wildlife enthusiasts that aren't hunters that mm -hmm. use our products. And you can go, if you go read our reviews, you'll see a lot of people talk about that which is really interesting, but it makes perfect sense, right? Like you, you build a product that is for that specific audience. And then if there's another audience that might use that product and the product, they know the product is going to meet the specifications. Like why would they be turned off by that? They probably I know. I think it's so scary for entrepreneurs to go all in on one segment. I, I think it's like they feel like they're leaving money on the table, but ironically it's the exact opposite. When right. you speak to a very specific audience, you usually do better. Well, and you got to start somewhere, right? Like you got to, you got to have a start. And so, you know, we've been running upland optics for five or so years now, focusing on mm -hmm. hunters. And now we're actually, we actually are going to be launching a, we are launching a bird watching brand, hopefully within the week. We've, oh, we so cool. it's something we've talked about for years, but it will be under a separate brand, right? It has its own, it's going to be called Bluebird Optics. And, you know, it's basically, it's going to have its own website, its own imaging that's going to be very focused on birds and bird watching. You know, it'll be labeled as a subsidiary of Upland Optics, um, but it's going to have its own very targeted messaging as well. That's amazing. So to, to grow traffic to a brand like this, mm -hmm. is this an SEO play? Or are you like, utilizing Amazon's like search engine there? Like how, how do you, how do you get customers? So it started as an SEO thing. I was an SEO specialist for a while. I worked at bodybuilding.com and did SEO there. And I, you know, built my own affiliate websites like I was talking about earlier that relied on organic traffic from Google. So that's kind of where it started. And we still do get a lot of traffic from organic search, both on Amazon and on Google. Um, but also the one thing that's worked really well is paid advertising. And honestly, that's I think that's an easier way to start out than organic because organic is hard to build over. You have to build it over time, you know, and it's it, it may not work necessarily. So if you have a little bit of money to experiment with paid ads, it's absolutely the way to go because you can get real time data super fast. You know, you get the data immediately to know whether or not your product is going to sell and it can be powerful, right? It's very scalable. We've been able to scale our paid ad campaigns enormously from where they started. For somebody starting out with paid ads, is it, are we talking like Google ads? Are we talking Facebook ads? Like what, what, what do you feel is best? So for our products, we use Google ads and then Amazon ads. So we, you know, Google ads are very, very powerful. That's the best way to sell something that's in that kind of mid price range. Like we have that, you know, it's not going to be an impulse buy that you see on Instagram and you're like, oh, that's cute. Let me buy it. No one does. Totally. That no one does that with a $250 <laughs> pair of binoculars. So, you know, we haven't really gotten social media ads to work for us, but I know a lot of people do you know, people that sell more design and artsy products like Jangard, you know, he totally. sells a lot of stuff on social media um, because for his, you know, his audience and his brand, that's what works really well. You just got to find the one that works for what you're selling. That makes sense. I think that's really good advice too. So, okay. You, you're doing all these businesses and then you somehow launched a cookware company as well. <laughs> what I have not caught up with you on the cookware. So tell us a little bit about how that came about and what the heck that looks like today. Yeah, so that was actually the brainchild of one of my employees, actually. Um, so at the time, we had um, two full-time writers that were working for uh, for us, and they were writing articles for affiliate websites and for Upland Optics and, you know, for all the brands. And one of them was passionate about cooking. Um, her name's Emery, and she kind of started us on this kitchenware idea. And so we launched a website around it and kind of went through the same process where it was like, 
okay, we're making a you know five percent sales commission on this cookware. Why don't we launch our own brand? And so that's sure. what we did. That's when Braden went over to to China, went to the Canton Fair, met with like twenty different cookware companies, found the best one. We found suppliers that supply for all the best cookware companies, all clad, you know, the companies that provide the the very highest quality stainless steel, and basically did the same thing. We sell directly to consumers. And because we sell directly to consumers, we don't have to pay that retail fee. And so we get this high quality five ply stainless steel for $400 and all clad sells it for $800, right? Whoa. So if you buy our products, you're getting essentially what all clad sells for half the price. Freaking incredible. And what's that company called? Kachara, Kachara Cookware. How'd you come up with the name? Uh, that one was uh, Braden likes to create names. He's good at that. I'm not very, I'm not creative enough to come up with company <laughs> names. Pots and pans. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like a uh, very, like, you know, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. Yeah. Very good building company. That's what my cookware company would be called. Very good cookware company. <laughs> it's freaking awesome. But I love that. I think it's, it's a very creative name. It's, it's kind of catchy. I think it's really yeah. smart oh, and sim- yeah. similar business model. Yep. Exactly the same. Yep. We sell, sell on Amazon and through our website and that's it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's worked out really well. And, and it, you know, we focus on that high end of that niche and people love those products. Again, like our stainless steel cookware set, I think is about a hundred reviews. Um, our fry pan is, I think about 300 as well and very highly reviewed. So, Ooh, okay. So legit question as a consumer, I yeah. often see so many Amazon reviews that look incredible, right? Like there's like mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands. I'm like, well, damn, I need that mattress. It looks wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then you dive into it and you hear that there's like fake reviews. Like what, what the heck is that even about? And how do you even know if there's a fake review? Yeah, that's, that's something that people get scared by a lot. And I've been asked that question a lot. And I think it's a problem that used to be more relevant than it is today. Amazon's gotten much, much better at excluding fake reviews. Uh, and we know this because we've had people write crappy reviews on our products that have been fake and Amazon's going and gone and removed them. Um, and also, you know, we've seen companies that had lots of positive reviews that were obviously fake and then Amazon has gone and taken them down. They've gotten much better over the years at cracking down on that. And that's where you can also look for those you know, verified purchaser reviews. They do mark every product review that is from a verified purchaser as a verified purchaser. That's really helpful in doing your research and looking for that. That's awesome. Okay. That's, that's good advice. I'm curious now. So you launched these businesses, you're running them, they're very profitable, successful, Mm -hmm. you're having a good time, but somehow you had too much free time and decided you were going to (laughs) go back to school. What gives man? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a great question. So I, it kind of started with a a passion for investing. I, investing has kind of always been my thing. I remember reading uh, Warren Buffett's biography, The Snowball, when I was like 16 or 17, and that kind of got me started on it. And so I've always loved investing. As the business has gotten more successful and I had more money, I got started getting into it a little bit and actually getting some experience with investing. And then I, you know, I, I didn't really actually want to go out and get an investing job because I already had a job, obviously, running my business, um, but I wanted to learn more about it. And so I was like, you know, I'll look around for master's in finance programs and see if there's anything that sticks out. Super cool. And then I find the Harvard Extension School. The Harvard Extension School, I, it's it's fantastic. I just wrote a series of articles on my whole experience um, about it. It's on jamespesky.com. I wouldn't need a link to that um, from somewhere. But anyway, the the program is fantastic because it's an online program you you it's hybrid considered hybrid online so you go there for part of the program so i went for three weekend trips and then also one longer three week long trip um to to do in-person classes and then the rest of it was online so i was able to keep running my businesses stay in idaho do my same thing and also at the same time earn a master's degree from harvard very affordable too. That's the other thing. Like most of the master's degree programs from Harvard are over a hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah. Harvard's extension school costs about thirty-six thousand dollars for the whole thing. Incredible. Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Like it's a like dollar for dollar, it's the best value for your money that you can get in a graduate program because it's a master's degree from Harvard for the price of a master's degree from pretty much any school on average, yeah. which is crazy. 
And the other cool part is that you can get into it without having to um, go through Harvard's normal admissions process. They have what's called an earn your way in approach because I would never have been eligible to go to Harvard, right? Me neither. I, I, had like a, I mean, my undergrad GPA was like a 3.1. I was too busy running my businesses to, you know, <laughs> to school. Um, you know, I got like a D in calculus. Like they would have seen that and been like, nope, this kid's not smart enough for Harvard. But because they have this earn your way in approach, you take the first three classes. And if you do well in the first three classes, then you're allowed to continue with the program. So they technically have a 100% acceptance rate and that anyone can sign up for a class. But then their graduation rate is low single digits because it's really hard. So you have to, you know, you have to be able to put in the work and do the studying and, you know, actually pass the classes to get through it, which is really cool. It's an amazing opportunity to to work hard. I, I feel like we're going to start seeing a lot more of that type of stuff that earn your way in with master's programs, because it seems as if I'm totally speculating here. It seems as if the value of degrees is a lot of people are like, well, yo, dude, I have a PhD and I'm struggling to get a job. Why would I invest more? And I love that they adapted to that. I think that was very smart. Yeah. I agree. And I think it's also the same thing is true with the online stuff. I think, I mean, obviously COVID has dramatically increased the amount of online schooling, um, but I think that trend is only going to continue because it's effective. You know, it works really well. So with your with your program, I loved reading through your articles. I thought it was so interesting to see your perspectives and how they sometimes differ from experts. And I love mm-hmm. that. I thought that was so awesome. So tell us about the time where you were in your class and you were having this conversation where your teacher called you out and said, what do you predict will happen? Which industry or sector should people be looking at in the next three months? You had a very good thought about that. So share share with us your your perspective there. Yeah, so I there were a lot of things about the the Harvard program that I I didn't agree with, um, and I wrote about this in those articles because it, it was so important to me, and, and I think that that's an important thing in general. Whenever you go through uh, an educational institution, you need to be critical of everything you're learning because just because your teacher says it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And I had a lot of background education in finance and investment because I've read dozens of books about it and I've done some of it myself. So, you know, I had a little bit of background going into it and I was able to question some of the things that my professors were asking. So in this class, it was an active portfolio management class, which was perhaps the class that I was most excited about in the whole program. And it ended up being a bit of a disappointment. Um, The professor just he he approached investing a different way than I approach investing. And he asked this question one time in class of what sector of the economy do you think is going to do well over the next three months? And my response is like, that is a question that should just never be asked. That's a terrible (laughs) question. Who knows how to answer that question? No one. No one can answer. No one can predict the economy. Right. Like it's it's been proven over and over again that nobody can actually accurately predict the economy. And so, therefore, why would you try to make a prediction for which sector will do best in the next three months? At the same time, why would anybody invest based on some kind of crazy prediction, even if you could predict that the only strategy that's been proven to work if you're going to try to beat a market index, which is the only reason to do anything other than buy a market index is because if you're actually trying to beat the market yourself, the only way to do that is by buying individual securities, right? By buying individual stocks, not by buying a you know section of the economy. No one's ever been successful in the long term by doing that. So basically, I told him that. And of course, he did what you know professors do when their students think their questions are stupid. And he, you know, <laughs> blew me off and said, no, 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 you need to answer the question that I'm asking. And so, OK, I said, finally, you know, this went back and forth a little bit. And finally, I said, OK, the only way I know to answer this question, the most recent two companies that I've bought have been physical retailers. Mm-hmm. And I told him that. And he took it the wrong way. He immediately thought, okay, he's he's saying that you should buy a retail, you know, the retail sector as a whole because all retailers are going to do well for the next three months. That's not what I meant at all, of course. I meant that these two specific companies were undervalued in the stock market. And so I bought their stocks because I believe they were undervalued, which means they're more likely to go up. Um, but And then he went on this big rant about how, oh, the retail sector probably won't do very well over the next few months because, you know, the they're predicting a recession is going to happen soon. And, um, you know, physical retailers are dying because of e-commerce, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, OK, I know that I am an e-commerce specialist. You don't have to <laughs> like, got tell it, me dude. that e-commerce <laughs> is a thing. I'm very aware of that. And I still think that these two specific companies are going to do well and their stock prices are going to do well. Mm. 
And I thought that because their stocks were undervalued, right? They were trading at a, a level that just simply didn't make sense. It was way down from their peaks in both cases. Um, and it was in one case, it was actually below the book value of the company, which is insane. Oh, wow. Um, and I mean, that's an unheard of situation. I'll give you a hint. It's It starts with a G. Can you guess the company? Yes. Um, company's name was GameStop. Keep in mind, this is 2019. I bought GameStop in 2019. At the time, it was a it was a significant holding of mine. It was one of only I think six companies that I owned, um, and I it was about 10% of my portfolio probably. Um, and then the other one was Sportsman's Warehouse, which you know behind the scenes went through a similar situation. Um, not a, not a similar situation what GameStop has done recently, um, but also had a huge explosion in their stock price. And I bought these two companies and, you know, my professor kind of said that the retail idea was stupid and, you know, there wasn't really any way that I could argue him because he's the, he's the professor and no matter, no matter what I say, he's right because he's the one that assigns the grades. Right. So, (laughs) but I own these two companies and they were significant portions of my portfolio, right? It wasn't like these were just like two of a thousand stocks that I own. These were concentrated portfolio holdings of mine mm-hmm. that I owned. The GameStop position, I wrote an article about my whole um, thing with GameStop as well. And basically what ended up happening is I owned GameStop from 2019 until the beginning of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought it at about $7 a share. And you know now it's trading at 330 something when I'd last looked. Not bad. Insane. I sold it long before it got to that point. Um, but basically, it went through a wave, right? Like it it went down from the seven dollars I paid. And for a long time, I had this loss on my books that was unrealized, you know, because I didn't sell the stock yet, and I, it was way down for a long time. And then it all of a sudden started to rally last year, and GameStop mm. stock it got up. Let's see, I sold it at 24. Um, at the beginning of the year. Freaking amazing, though. And, 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 you know, and it made sense because the company, the stock price was below the, you know, liquidation value of the company. The company, I mean, GameStop has its struggles for sure. Don't get me wrong. Their sales have been declining like crazy. Yeah. But at the same time, when their stock was only $7 a share, that didn't make sense based on the cash that they had on hand and the cash flow generated by their company. Um, so I saw that and I said, okay, I bought it at $7 a share. Now, when it got up to like $20 a share, that's when I was like, okay, this is getting a little bit high. It's probably not worth this, um, you know, for this and this and this reason. And I had very specific reasons why I thought that. And so I decided to sell the position. And then this whole Reddit thing blew up and now it's, you know, it got up at one point to $500 a share. So that's kind of an example of how, you know, illogical things can happen on both sides. Because on the one side, it never should have been priced at seven dollars a share, or I think at one point it was down to like two fifty a share. Right? That was that was too low. The market was being ir- illogical and irrational about the way it was pricing GameStop. But now it's gone completely the other way. GameStop is absolutely <laughs> not worth three hundred and thirty dollars a share, and I don't think I don't think anybody who's serious about finance thinks that. It's just gotten this massive boost from a speculative wave. You know, and that's people will say it's historically unprecedented, and that's absolutely not true. It's no different than tulip bulbs, and the I, I can't remember what century it was that the tulip bulb wave happened, or yep. you know, a million other things that have gone through speculative waves. It's just been more powerful because of what's happened. You know, happened very quickly because of social media. Oh, so, so true. You know, it's it's kind of a crazy situation. And then the other stock that I bought at the time that essentially went through a similar process was Sportsman's Warehouse. And Sportsman's Warehouse, it was trading at $4 a share. I sold it at 14 And it that one actually, it, that one never went through a period when it was down. That one started rallying pretty much after I bought it. Um, and it went up significantly. And then, so it, it went from $4 a share when I bought it in like 2019. And then by the beginning of 2020, it was up to like $6 a share. And then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, firearm sales went through the roof. And so their stock price shot up like crazy. So my, I already had like a 50% profit. And then next thing you know, I had like a 200% profit. I sold it at $14 a share. That's Uh, incredible. Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a crazy story there too. But in both cases, it's because, you know, I put in the work and went through a process and had the, you know, I had an actual logic behind why I was buying those two socks and why I was selling them, right? But in both cases, their stocks went up more after I sold. But I was fine with that because that wasn't something that I could predict. 
right? Like I knew when I bought that it was the right decision to buy. And I knew when I sold, it was the right decision to sell. This is so important because I think if somebody's not paying close attention, they can easily hear that and say, well, James was speculating on what he thinks would happen. And that's not at all the case. You were looking at what's the company as is, is it undervalued? And that's what you're basing off. I'm not like, I think that with COVID, there's probably going to be more medical transportation companies that need to distribute vaccination. So I'm going to put my money into that. Like, that's not at all the same thing. No, definitely not. You know, I'm actually, I'm looking at the company's financial statements and I'm saying, okay, based on that, I think the company is worth X dollars and the stock price shows that it's only worth this much. So Mm -hmm. if the stock price is worth less than what I think the company is actually worth, that's what I'm going to buy it. And if it's, Mm -hmm. if the stock price is more than what I think it's worth, that's what I'm going to sell it. Love it. Okay. And that's what it's, it's too bad with the GameStop thing that has happened recently um, people see that I invested in GameStop and made a lot of money on GameStop yeah. and they, they immediately think, oh, he's just some speculative trader totally. and people, you know, people ask me, oh, so do you own like Dogecoin and like stuff like that? And I'm like, no, I don't own any of that crap. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, because you know, like, yeah, I invested in GameStop, but I also was out of GameStop before the, the Reddit wave took over because by mm-hmm. that point, the stock was overpriced and I was happy to sell it. It's so true. I love that you you clarified that too. I think that's so important. So I'm curious for you, what what would you say your investing strategy is? I personally, I don't do any individual stocks. It's just not something that I I personally am comfortable with. But it sounds like you're doing quite a bit. Is that of that? Is that pretty much all you're investing in? Is like your businesses, your growth, a little bit of real estate if you want to call it that, and then individual stocks. Is that kind of your portfolio? So, yeah, and this is one of those do as I say and not as I do situations, because I'm going to say that people should follow your advice and your example. Um, Most people should own an index fund. I don't believe that most people should be buying individual stocks like what I'm doing. The reason that I'm buying individual stocks is because I'm trying to be a professional investor, right? I'm taking on that risk personally, for one thing, because I have the money, right? I can afford to lose it right now if I lost Like if I lost it, it, you know, it's not like I'm going to be losing my house because I lost the money in the stock market. Um, For another thing, I am very well researched and very well read and I'm doing the work on a daily basis to become a professional investor. I have a master's degree in finance from Harvard. I'm very qualified to be doing this and therefore, you know, I'm trying to become a professional investor. That's not something that I would recommend. You know, if you're a software engineer and in your free time you want to, you know, dabble in investing, I think you're better off to just buy an index fund and accept the market return because the market return is really good. Like, I mean, you, it's not as good as, you know, if you happen to buy GameStop in January and hold on to it and sell it at exactly $500. (laughs) Legit, right? But still, you know, the market returns on average 10% a year. That's fantastic. Like if you, as a software engineer, you're better off to focus your time and energy to your career and making more money and then investing in an index fund and getting that market return of 10% because that market return of 10% is more than adequate to build wealth over time. Compounding takes time, right? Like it takes a long time for compounding to pay off, but when it does pay off, it's enormous. And so if you, you know, invest the time into your career and make more money, that will actually work out better for you than, you know, trying to beat the market if you're not going to be a professional investor. Mm-hmm. So yeah, long-winded way of saying Um, I definitely, I personally do an investment strategy that I wouldn't recommend to other people. I hold a very concentrated portfolio of just a few stocks, right? Like right now, I believe I own nine stocks, maybe 10, um, which is a very, like compared to, even compared to like, you know, a professional hedge fund or whatever, very concentrated portfolio. I tend to follow Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's advice more than anybody else. And that's something that they talk about. It's having a concentrated portfolio. Um, and knowing it really well, right? Like I know a lot about those companies that I own and I know a lot about the stock prices of those companies and the trends that it's gone through. Um, and also, you know, the value of those companies outside of just the stock market. So, you know, I have this very concentrated portfolio of equities. I also have my businesses besides that, right? So I have my own companies that, you know, still generate cash flow for me. So that's the other big portion of my net worth. 
and then you know i have a house that's also a big chunk of net worth of course um so i mean i have and i also do own quite a bit of index funds so even though i do have a very concentrated portfolio of equities that i'm managing myself i also have a lot of index funds especially in my retirement accounts mm. so my retirement accounts are 100 percent just the stock market total index fund from vanguard and i absolutely love that strategy i think that that's the best way that you can guarantee long-term success is to have an index fund so with your with your individual stocks is this more for funsies like it's not under a retirement account uh, well, so most of my wealth is just in a regular brokerage account, and that's okay. because you know you can only c- contribute so much to a, a true retirement account, right? Right. Um, I wouldn't say it's for funsies, like in the sense that it's just for fun. Like I definitely have a substantial amount of money in there. That's absolutely like you know the the bulk of my net worth at this point, and so you, you know it's it's definitely something I'm trying to do professionally. It's mm-hmm. not just a for fun thing. It's it's certainly uh-huh. professional, but it's also it's in a normal brokerage taxable account just because of the limits of how much you can put in the retirement account. Makes sense. Okay. Okay. I love that. I think it's so interesting. And I'm curious for you too, when you are picking out companies, how there's so freaking many, like, how do you Mm -hmm. even begin to say this is one? Is it companies that you personally use? Like how how do you decipher where you're going to dive in for research? That's hard. And, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. Companies that I do personally use that has been some of where I got my some of my ideas. Um, I also like to follow a few specific investors that I think are very good and get ideas from them. Um, Warren Buffett, uh, Michael Burry from the big short, um, Howard Marks, um, a couple other guys, Joel Greenbot, that are like very good value investors that have similar philosophies to I do about investing. And I like to look through their current holdings and say, OK, there's an idea of one that I might be interested in. And I think I've gotten some of my best investments have come from looking at that. Um, Makes sense. A great example of that, when Warren Buffett first bought Apple. So he bought Apple. You know, it, Apple is now Berkshire Hathaway's largest holding, mm-hmm. right? So it's the, the largest stock holding that Warren Buffett has. After he bought Apple, Apple's stock price went down the next year. Mm-hmm. I looked at that and I said, huh, Apple's an amazing company probably the best in the world at what they do. They're actually who we modeled Upland Optics after in our marketing and in our product design, trying to be super simple and all that. Um, They're an amazing company. They're currently valued at a price lower than Warren Buffett thought they're worth. And Warren Buffett's the greatest investor of all time. That's a pretty good indication that their stock price is low. So I said, okay, I'm going to take a look at Apple. And so I read their annual Mm. report. I looked at their financials. I thought a lot about you know, their business and their long-term prospects and their moats and how they can fend off competition. I said, okay, Apple's a good investment right now. Their stock price is down. I'm going to buy them. So I bought a lot of Apple. I've done very well on that investment. I'm sure I've you bought, have. Apple's been killing oh, it. It's, it's tripled since I bought it. That's another one that's, that's tripled amazing. since I bought it. And I still own, my Apple is also my largest shareholding now just because it's not oh, cool. Yeah, I've done very well on that. And that one just came from, you know, looking at my heroes, my investment heroes and saying, okay, here's all their stocks that they own. Because you have to start somewhere. You know, like you said, there's thousands of companies out there. So that's where I like to start is, you know, the lists from people who, you know, I like to follow in the investing world and say, okay, which ones of their ideas do I agree with? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's smart. Mm -hmm. Right. Because otherwise, like, there's so much noise when it comes to the financial industry. There's so many opinions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that makes it so tough to navigate is like, you know, you, you have your opinions. I have my opinions. And then Warren Buffett has like, who do you listen to? And I think you're smart for saying like, yo, that guy, he's the one that's like, has a track record of killing it. At least as a starting point, you know, right? Like you you definitely have to own it for yourself. Like if you're going to own a company, you need to do the research and say, okay, the company is worth this amount. The market says it's worth this. I'm going to buy it based on that difference. Mm-hmm. You know, so you do have to like if you don't have strong convictions about that, you shouldn't be buying individual stocks. You shouldn't be buying GameStop just because it went up a thousand percent in the last year, right? Like that's not a good reason to buy a stock. Like you should be buying or crypto. Oh god, don't get me started on crypto. I know. That's I how you turn this into a three-hour podcast of me going <laughs> on a soapbox. I, I um, might need some wine for that, man. I get fired too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, and like you know, I will say people who own that stuff like. There are some people that have done really well, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are some people who bought GameStop at $500 a share and sold it at 50 and lost their entire life savings. There are also people who did that with loans and yeah. went broke and go bankrupt because of that. It's just not like those people should just be buying an index fund. 
Agreed. I totally it's agree. the smartest strategy. I mean, it's again, I, I know I sound like a hypocrite because it's a do as I say, not as I do thing. I'm doing something else personally. But, you know, unless you want to become a full time professional investor, you should just be relying on an index fund because the index fund return is good enough. Right. I agree with you. I, I think there's I have a few friends that are actually day traders, and I think it's very interesting because it's not something I personally have the risk tolerance for. Like, dude, I'd be crying every night. Like, oh my God, like I couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. But I do believe if you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to learn the ins and outs, you can do it. Like you can make it work. If you don't want to, I think all you're saying is like, cool, you've got other options that are still really great options. But if Mm -hmm. you want to do the work and you want to challenge yourself in that way, it's very possible. Just don't put everything on the line. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of that, too, is like it's just intellectually interesting. Right. Like that was was why I wanted to get into that is because I was intellectually interested in the idea of investing and I wanted to learn a lot about it. So by managing it myself, that gave me the excuse to get a master's degree from Harvard and read, you know, 8000 books about investing. Not literally, probably probably Probably. a few dozen, probably a few dozen. Um, (laughs) I do read a lot of books. That is the key. You do. success about that stuff. But yeah. Okay. I have to dive into this too, because I thought this was so fun. When you were talking about one of your challenges to yourself was reading every president's biography or autobiography. Mm-hmm. Immediately, I was like, what a cool idea. What did you, uh, like, any fun takeaways from that? Oh, that was awesome. There's another article on my blog. Um, one more. <laughs> it's one a more good one. Most plug there um, on my blogs. But somebody had the idea to read the biographies of every U.S. president, which there's tons of them out there, right? Like Abraham Lincoln, there's something like 3,500 biographies out there. Um, But I found a website that reviews biographies of presidents and has a list saying, hey, here's the best ones for each president. So I found that list. That one's it's linked to on my website as well. Um, And I just went through and I started George Washington and I went all the way through. And when I did it, Donald Trump was still in office. So I didn't read one on Donald Trump, but um, I read the other 44 and I will read one on Trump once it's been long enough that somebody comes out with an actual historical biography of him, which will probably be a while. And that was the tough thing with even even people like Obama and Bush and even Bill Clinton. It hasn't been long enough yet for a historian to come out with an unbiased biography of some of those guys. I would say George H.W. Bush was the last one that there was truly like a really good biography on. Um, After that, it was they they got a little bit biased and political just because they were too recent. Um, But there was a lot of good takeaways from that. That was really interesting. You learn a lot about leadership. You learn a lot about reading about history is very helpful for investing, first off, because Mm. history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Right. You learn a lot of these lessons, these things that keep coming back and forth. You know, I would say also it was very helpful when COVID happened, because when COVID happened, ironically, at the time, I was in that period um, where I just read about the Spanish flu um, epidemic. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I had just read about the Spanish flu. That gave me some historical context so that I was less likely to panic when COVID happened, right? So if you have historical context by reading things like biographies of former presidents, which a biography of a president is really just a you know history of that time in the country. So you learn a lot about what's happening. It gives you context that you can then use in your everyday life, right? Like I've gotten business lessons from reading history. I've gotten investing lessons. It's so helpful for all that stuff. Um, definitely a worthwhile project. It was an enormous undertaking. I will say that it was it was the equivalent of reading the Bible. I think it was, I did the math. It's on my website. I believe it was the equivalent of reading the Bible eight and a half times. Freaking nuts. So like if you think about, you know, people spend a year reading the Bible, right? Like yeah. I did that eight and a half times, like the equivalent. Wow. Um, what was your time frame? It took me about 14 or 15 months to get through them. I also listened to probably a, um, a quarter of them on audiobook. So I, I do, I read a lot. Um, you do. And about a third of the books that I read every year are on audiobook when I'm driving. But the rest is on on paper. Is this through Audible? Is that where you use? Yeah. Yeah, I like Audible a lot. I do too. I think think it's so worth the investment. So many people are like, cut that out. I'm like, no, keep it. It's so good. It's like 25 bucks a month to get two books. And then, yeah, I mean, like I go through two audiobooks every month. Like, it's fantastic. I don't know why you, I mean, that's so much learning. Last year, I listened to 36 total audiobooks. Um, cause I bought more beyond just the plan. Um, and so like that's 36 more books that I read. And I listened to uh, probably 95% of that listening happened while I was driving when I otherwise mm. would not be doing anything productive. 
So, I mean, talk about an easy way to add some learning into your life is just listening to audiobooks on your driving. Any tips for somebody that wants to listen to audiobooks, but maybe that's not the way they absorb info the best? Like, do you have any any tips that help you for that? You know, that's a great question because for a long time I was in that category. Really? I, I really didn't think that I could learn well by listening. And this was because I didn't do well in school. Um, and because, so I always thought that, oh, I just don't learn well by listening. Um, what got me finally going on it was when I started that presidential series, I said, hmm. okay, I'm going to read all these things. I'm going to need to do it more effectively. And so I downloaded my first audiobook, which was about John Adams. It's a 30 hour long audiobook. Um, I, one thing that I immediately picked up on is you increase the speed of the reading. So I listen at two X speed. So a 30 oh, wow. hour audiobook becomes 15 hours. That helps a lot. But because I had this plan and this interest in reading about all the presidents, I was able to say, okay, I'm going to get through these audiobooks while I'm driving. And I also started it on a road trip, which helps. I was driving over, mm. um, to, um, an Eastern part of Idaho to climb a mountain. So it was like a four, four or five hour drive. So I listened to like half of this audiobook on this drive to and from this mountain. Um, so I, you know, by doing a, a one big chunk like that while I was driving, it kind of got me started. Mm. And then once I got started, I was immediately hooked, like just totally got into it. Absolutely loved it. That's awesome. I, I think that's a really good tip too. And with the 2x speed, did you have to like train your brain to listen that quickly or was it pretty intuitive? Uh, it comes pretty quick because audiobooks tend to be read slow. One thing I've noticed <laughs> when I do I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, um, but when I do listen to podcasts, I can't listen to them at 2x speed because when people are having normal conversational talks like we are right now, you talk faster than when yep. someone is talking for an audiobook because they intentionally talk slow so that it's easy to understand. So 2x speed on an audiobook usually is pretty doable. Um, I did work up to it. Like I started at one and a half and then I went to like one and a set, 1.7, then like 1.9 and then two. Um I think if I really wanted to, I could maybe go a little bit faster, but I think at that point I would start to lose a little bit of comprehension or That's at least I lose wonder a little too. bit. Of, yeah. yeah. I'm about the same. So I can do a lot of audiobooks if I, if I'm driving, I think that's mm -hmm. the key. Like if I'm legitimately just focused on the road and that's it, I can absorb the info a lot better. But if I'm in my garage building furniture or something, oh, yeah. no, it's gotta be like one and a half. <laughs> that's hard. Yeah. It is tough. I love this. We've covered so much ground and I think it's all very valuable and so interesting. So I'm super, super grateful for your time. For yeah, anybody that wants to connect with you, where should they go to hang out with you and all of your awesomeness? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my website that, you know, has been mentioned a couple of times, jamespetsky.com. Uh, my last name is spelled P-E-T-Z-K-E. -E. Um, that's a great place. I write articles on there. I don't write very often, um, but when I do, I only write things that I think are super valuable for other people. I, I'm not going to write about it if I don't think it's valuable. Um, also, Instagram is a good way. I just I finally started an Instagram. I was only 11 <laughs> years late to the party. But I did finally start an Instagram recently um, where I'll be posting, you know, links to the articles and whatnot. Or, I mean, I guess, you know, little snippets from the article. Instagram doesn't actually let you link, but you get the idea. Um, yeah, my Instagram is James Petsky. Um, you can follow me there. Um, you can also um, you can check out my companies, Upland Optics, Kachara Cookware. Um, but the, if, you, if you just want to follow me personally and especially... You know, the, the stuff that I think is probably most relevant to your audience, finance, investing, all that stuff I write about on my blog, jamespetsky.com. And they're really fun articles, too. They're very, very well thought out. And I, I think it's a really different perspective. So I'm grateful that you put that out into the world. I know it yeah. takes time to articulate any sense of an article. So I think it's really awesome. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing about it that I've discovered is that honestly, by writing, I feel like I'm learning, you know, mm -hmm. it's one of those things like, you know, that you've probably heard the expression, you know, the best way to learn something is to teach it. Totally. And, you know, I've found that by writing, and that's why I'm writing so much more these mm -hmm. days than I never used to write at all. I mean, I never had a personal blog or an Instagram or any of these things before. But what I discovered is that by doing some of these things, I reabsorb lessons so much better. And it all started when I wrote an article about the best books that I read in 2019 and put it on my website for fun. And I was like, oh, I actually got something out of that. Maybe I'll do that more. So the next year, I wrote, <laughs> next year I wrote three articles. And then this year, I think I've already written four or five. So, you know, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning that, you know, there's a little bit of value to be had in doing that. For sure. For sure. My friend, are you down for some rapid fire questions before we officially part ways? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. I'm obsessed with people's morning routines. Are mm -hmm. you a morning routine kind of person? 
Um, kind of. I wake up about seven and then I, I do my breakfast is very routine every day. I have three eggs and sometimes with um, sausage that I make myself from deer or elk. Dude. And then um, the bigger one is um, I do zucchini oatmeal, which I don't know if you've ever put zucchini in oatmeal. But when I discovered that it was a life changer, talk about the easiest way to get vegetables. You just huh. shred up zucchini in a cheese grater and then you throw it in your oatmeal. So I make oatmeal every morning that has, you know, normal rolled oats. Chia seeds, zucchini, blueberries, cinnamon, like the healthiest superfood that you can imagine. Like it's so great. So I eat that every morning. Oh, that's a great tip. I'm going to try it. Are you a coffee drinker? I'm not. I do not drink coffee. I don't do any caffeine. Wow. None at all. I haven't had caffeine since I was like 15 years old. You're like, this energy is natural, guys. <laughs> That's <laughs> Honestly, amazing. Like, I think, yeah. So I, I I used to drink a lot of caffeine when I was in school. And then I realized it was giving me headaches. So I stopped. Huh. And the funny thing is, I feel like I have more energy without it. But Probably. I think it's amazing. Well, you you also have a very active life. So I think that probably helps, that helps you do quite a, a bit. <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay. Next question for you. Where Where is like one location you're dying to travel to let's pretend it's post COVID that might make it more exciting. Actually, it probably doesn't matter COVID or not because the place that I want to go is the middle of nowhere. Um, I want to go to Alaska, the middle of nowhere and go hunting. Um, I like, I want to like one of those hunting trips where you get dropped off on a bush plane and you have to live in Alaska, you know, like a hundred miles from the nearest person, um, for 10 days. Um, I'd love to hunt caribou up there. That's probably going to be the first one that I do. Um, maybe moose at some point. Can you just promise me you'll bring bear spray? <laughs> I mean, there will, I will definitely be be very ready. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. That that makes my heart a little scared. I'm like, oh, yep. just bring bear spray. Okay, James. <laughs> will do. Will do. <laughs> okay. Next question for you. What's one purchase you recently made that has made your life better? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's tough to not say books because books are always the answer for me. Um, there have been a lot of books that recently I've really liked. Um, probably the, the one that comes to mind first off, Think Again by Adam Grant. That one was it just recently was released was awesome. Super highly recommend that book. Um, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. That book came out. I think that book is super important. Um, and it talks about, you, you know, that book in particular talks about the big picture, how we can actually solve climate change, change hmm. issues. It's not just a, he focuses on things that can eliminate at least 1% of carbon emissions, which is, so he has to focus on things that are big, right? He's not debating about whether or not straws are good for the environment. He's saying, okay, we have this massive issue. We need massive undertakings to deal with that. So, you know, we need to completely revolutionize nuclear power or, you know, things like that. Um, That book was excellent. Huh. I'll have to check out both of those. I haven't read either Mm -hmm. of them yet. Yeah. Think Again by Adam Grant, I think, was probably the best book that I've read in a year. So it's amazing. Very cool. Okay, I'll definitely check that one out. Um, My last question for you, and probably one of the most important, is in your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? You know, living below your means is probably the most important part. I would say if you you live below your means, you will you're going to set yourself up to where you can never fail, right? As long as you consistently live below your means, because you'll just never, you know, put yourself in a situation where you're in trouble. Um, and I think that kind of going along with that is tracking your net worth. I've tracked my net worth every month for, I mean, at least half a dozen years now. And by just doing that, knowing the actual number and seeing the actual trend of how much your net worth, and it's super easy. You just literally make an Excel spreadsheet that says, you know, here's my checking account, here's my credit cards, here's my house, here's my mortgage. And, you know, you just get the total number of what you're worth at the end of the day. Having that number every month and seeing it mm-hmm. is super valuable. It's kind of that principle of, you know, that what's that what gets measured gets managed. So if you know the number, you're more likely to be aware of it and to keep track of it and to actually do things about it. I love it. I think that's all great advice. James, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It was so yeah, fun hearing your you, updates and all your businesses. You're kicking butt, friend. Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. So what'd you think? Did you enjoy this episode? I personally love learning from James. He's one of my good friends. And every time I get to chat with him, I always learn something new. I think he's such an interesting guy and he's very forward thinking. And it's definitely a trait I admire in him a ton. One of the things that I thought was most interesting is his perspectives on investing. 
They do kind of differ from mine for sure, but it was something where I can see where he's coming from. And I think it's a really interesting way to go. So that was something that really I took away from this conversation was there's so many different ways to build wealth. And I just love the way he's doing it too. I'd love to hear from you. What were some of your takeaways? Make sure you tag me on Instagram, take a screenshot of this and let me know what your takeaways were. It's always so much fun to see who's listening in and more than anything, what you're learning. Now I will see you guys on Friday for five tip Friday or next week for another episode of the money nerds podcast. Bye. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.